Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast, Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series, Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series, SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by the world's best caddy, Dagan Moriarty. Dagan, how are you today? Hi, guys. Oh. It's a beautiful day here in California. It is. We haven't seen it, but it is We a haven't beautiful seen day. it, but I hear it's a beautiful day out Yeah, there. we can see. There's a little bit of sun shining through the <laughs> curtains here in the home studio. We appreciate you always joining us here on knock, on Knockback. Man, I'm flubbing lines today like crazy. I was flubbing a few lines on the last one, but Stop I'm not editing it out. <laughs> Keep it natural, all natural, I, all, all natural. I keep it all natural all the time. You do. Everywhere. Put some pants on. Literally everywhere. <laughs> now, Dagan, for the uninitiated, Knockback is our retro and nostalgia theme podcast that we do every week over at SoundCloud, and it's supported on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. Your support there allows us to continue to do the show. You get special perks for supporting us there each month, depending on the level you're at. And that support also goes to my other shows, the YouTube channel SideQuest, the eclectic interview series Fireside Chats, and the very popular PlayStation podcast, Sacred Symbols. So we appreciate your support over there, and that allows you to interact with our show, get early access to shows, get exclusive podcasts, etc., and so on. But we appreciate you regardless of where and how you listen, although I assume you listen with your ears. <laughs> Dagan, today's episode in Wave 5, as we record Wave 5, this is actually the flipping point, I guess, because this is the fifth episode of recording of nine. So we're yes. about to be halfway through, basically. I know. Halfway through this one, we'll be halfway through. So I know. Oh, it's yeah. wild. It's Inception. It's a Christopher Nolan film. <laughs> <laughs> this episode's about Caddyshack, the 1980 comedy film. And Caddyshack's one of my favorite movies, certainly top 10 movies of all time. Whoa. And I know that for you... It's a movie that I strangely kind of introduced you to, and I was introduced to it in turn from some people in high school. And it's considered, widely considered, to be one of the classic sports movies and sports comedies. And there's great sports movies and sports comedies out there. So that really does say something when you're looking at the likes of Slapshot and stuff like that, which are also incredibly inappropriate mm, and incredibly funny movies. Definitely. So before we get into it, and we have a few you know listener questions that were submitted, and we have quite a bit to talk about here, but... When I talk about Caddyshack, like what comes to mind for you? What What is it all about? And is it a movie that appeals to you? Definitely. You know, my first memories of Caddyshack were it was always considered one of those prominent comedies growing up. And it was always one of those ones that was the prominent one of the prominent films, you know, in the VHS case on the VHS wall in the video store, you know, along with the other really notable comedy movies of the 80s. This was always one of the most popular ones, I think. If I'm not mistaken, it was played, you know, they probably had to edit it a bit, especially the nudity, but it was played on TV, talked about, just one of those emblematic comedy films that I don't remember ever really seeing, or if I saw it, I saw it in passing. And now, for me, 
you know, we didn't get into Rodney yet, Rodney Dangerfield yet, but this was your Rodney Dangerfield movie that you were pretty much obsessed with. And then my friend PJ had his Rodney Dangerfield movie that he was obsessed with in Back to School. Which is another phenomenal Another movie. phenomenal, very funny movie. But that was my, that's my earliest memories of it, just kind of it always being there. You know, everybody knew what it was. Oh, Caddyshack, The Gopher, Bill Murray. Even if you didn't see it, you saw it. Right, You know, right. that type of thing. I remember being introduced to it when these kids in like one of my high school classes, I don't remember who it necessarily was, would do the that that noise when you know Ty, my know, played by character. Chevy Chase, so is like golfing and he's making these weird noises, and people would make that noise all the time, like the you know, as he was because I don't know what did that. It was like just some kid that I that's hilarious. Yeah, like my chemistry class would do it, and I was like, what is that? Like because they would do it to each other, like my friends or whatever, or not my friends, but these acquaintances that I had, and. I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And it was Caddyshack. So I went and, you know, rented it and immediately fell in love with it. And That's I hadn't what started really, it for you. Yeah, I hadn't really ever even heard of it, you know. And, you know, having been born in 1984 and this movie having come out in 1980, not that it's unheard of that you would watch and hear about things before your time. But it was just one of those things that I just never really was enamored with, especially because I'm not, you know, a golf fan. I like golf. I think it's a cool sport. I it think is it's a cool sport. Really technical and really difficult to play, and it looks like a lot of fun. And I've played it, you know, here and there. As a lefty, I'm a little bit of an odd man out right. when I don't have my own clubs, so it's a little bit tough for me. You can rent them or whatever. A friend of mine's dad was a lefty, so that was kind of useful for me. But you know, it was one of those situations where I just, you know, was introduced to it kind of late, but then quickly fell in love with it. And when I went to college at Northeastern, I found out that it was very common for people to be in love with this movie, and it was one of those DVDs that people owned and. One of those very quotable movies, and my best friend Ramon and I, you know, share a bond over Caddyshack and quoting Caddyshack. And as you said, <laughs> Ronnie he love it too. Oh, he loves it too. Yeah, and Ronnie Dangerfield, as you said, one of the great comics of all time, and certainly one of the iconic American comics. We were just watching him, you know, some of his performances on Johnny Carson's show, you know, over time, and how funny he is and how funny God. Johnny just plays his into it so well. His stand up is so good. The jokes he wrote were amazing. So self deprecating, and so many jokes. Too. So many. <laughs> So many. Like it's always it's always making fun of himself, you know, and oh, oh it's, and his family, yeah, and his and, wife and his kids. Yeah, it's that typical awesome. Henny Youngman formula, but so good. Yeah, I know. Like most jokes per second of any comedian, of, of per minute of any comedian, and always moving around and adjusting his tie and <laughs> shifting in the seat and stuff. It's so funny, and you know he's self aware of like why that's funny. I would I would have always been interested to see how he acted in a normal setting, like when he was not being yeah, funny. just being a regular yeah. dude. But to catch people up on this movie just a little bit more about what it's about, basically, and what's what's going on in it, where it came from, you know, we'll take a few minutes to go into that, and then we'll really get deeper into it. But like I said, it came out in 1980, and it's about a golf course in Illinois called Bushwood Country Club. It's a fictional, you know, golf course, and it's a, I have a Bushwood Country Club shirt, you know, I'm very proud of wearing sometimes, and people always identify it on the street and say something about it, which is funny. It was filmed, though, in Florida in 1979. And it was designed to intentionally feel Midwestern. If you read about it or watch some documentaries, and there's a lot of stuff about Caddyshack that you guys can go read and watch. There are books about it, about the making of. There are documentaries about the making of, et cetera, and so on. It's really fascinating to read about how much depth there is in terms of just storytelling from the making of this film and kind of the reaction to the film and the onset shenanigans and the mixture of characters and how they brought everyone together and how they rewrote it and all of that kind of stuff. So they found a place in Florida that lacked palm trees you know, uh, that looked decidedly Midwestern, and it certainly does. It doesn't look like it was in Florida. They wanted to film it in California, but they ended up getting kind of away from that and, and filmed it in Florida in 1979. And it was heavily influenced by real events, by the events not only of Harold Ramis, who's the writer and director, but those in his orbit about, you know, kind of the crazy shit that 
happened to them in the past, you know, like the the Baby Ruth story, for instance, which is a famous part of the Caddyshack movie, is like a real story, you know. They were really caddies. They really had, you know, some of these characters and people they knew were very similar to some of the characters, you know, Judge, you know, Judge Smales and all these people that they, they ended up kind of putting in the movie, which is really cool and really appropriate. And, you know, the movie is well known for the tension on the set, but also the impro- improvisation between the actors and the rewrites and the kind of zaniness that was happening between the characters that I really enjoyed. And, you know, I find the movie incredibly watchable, which is something that we say pretty often. But what I mean by that is like when it's on, I'm going to watch it and I'm going to tune in and I'm going to pay attention to it. And it never really gets old. And it's, it reminds me of Seinfeld or Curb or one of those comedies in a way where you see it and you anticipate the joke and you know what's coming, but it's still funny every time. And I, especially as you said, feel that way about Rodney Dangerfield, who is so good in this. I, I love Back to School. I give PJ credit for loving Back to School. I think that's a great movie, but I don't think He's Back to School is as good as, as this movie. You like Caddyshack of, better. I like it better as a movie, and I think Rodney Dangerfield's funnier in Caddyshack. Although it's funny, he plays like a rich tycoon in both movies. He's basically like the same character, you know, in both movies, which I always really found really, really funny. But to talk a little bit about Harold Ramis, you know, who's the writer and director of this, it's important to remember that Caddyshack came out and was kind of envisioned at a time with very similar raunchy comedies that were big in the late 70s and into the early 80s. And it kind of fits the mold of these other movies that are out there. And we've talked about Back to School, which is later. But when you think about Animal House and you think about Meatballs and Stripes and, of course, you know, National Lampoon's Vacation yeah. and all those kinds of things. Well, Harold Ramis wrote and directed all those movies. And so it's not, you know, a huge... Well, he wrote most of those movies and directed other movies. He wrote and ended up writing Animal House, ended up writing Meatballs, ended up writing Stripes, ended up writing, you know, National Lampoon's Vacation, directed Back to School, directed Ghostbusters 1 and 2, wrote and directed Groundhog Day, wrote and directed Analyze This and Analyze That. So a pretty Amazing. esteemed dude that understood comedy and understood those kinds of cadences and whatnot as well. And I think the other big thing that we have to talk about as we begin our conversation about Caddyshack is the cast of characters. And of course, the cast is huge, but I think it all kind of hinges on three people. Chevy Chase as Ty Webb, Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> as Al Cervic, and Bill Murray as Carl the Groundskeeper. You know, and, and the kind of the zaniness between these different characters and how the movie was really designed to be about the kids, the caddies, and ended up kind of being rewritten on the spot to more heavily feature the adults. Yeah. So... If I say to you that this is like one of the funniest movies, would you agree with that? Or do you think that it's more nuanced than that? Because I think it's both overtly and very covertly funny. Like there are really funny scenes that are obvious and then there are really funny scenes that you kind of have to watch a few times in order to understand better. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it definitely bears re- repeat watching. I would say, you know what's it called for this? I think it's a very light movie. I think it's a very fun movie. I would say more than one of the funniest movies. For me, I would say it's one of the silliest movies very cartoony in its nature, which I, which appeals to me for sure. Laugh out loud, funny. I'm not. There are, there are things that make me laugh out loud in the film, and it could be a matter of just seeing it a lot of times. I watched it. I've seen it before, obviously, and I watched it twice in preparation for this episode. More just a delightful movie for me. Something that's a complete distraction. You know, just lose yourself for an hour and a half, have a great time, and just silly. Just the silliness of it, and a little bit of the awkwardness. Like Rodney Dangerfield dancing, there's nothing more awkward than that. Let's you know? dance. <laughs> yeah. Very, very to me, very, very silly. Very specific brand of comedy that's very, very silly. Now, for you, what would you say? Would you say this is among the funniest movies you could think of? I think it's the, one of the most clever movies that I can think of. I think that there's just a lot of really clever stitching together when you consider Ramis and his team, kind of having to 
dodge and weave through their own script, which was apparently quite long in the beginning. And for them to kind of parse through the dailies and figure out that they really wanted to make a different movie than they had went to the studio to make and kind of, you know, wrangling all of these different disparate characters, two of whom really didn't like each other very much. It, yes. was, a, it was a difficult probably movie to make. And apparently the shenanigans on screen were also really difficult to deal with. But I think that in terms of cleverness, in terms of the zeitgeist of the time, and in terms of where it fits in that kind of pantheon of similar teen to adult college kind of movies that are raunchy and inappropriate and all those kinds of things, Caddyshack's right at home. And I think when you really compare and contrast it to Airplane and you can compare and Mm. contrast it to Stripes and all these movies of the time, I think it kind of is head head and shoulders above the rest because I think it just works. I don't think people talk about some of those other movies, even Animal House and stuff, in the same reverence today. as they, I don't think they hold up as well, indeed, as they do now. Yeah. You know? And so yeah, I think I that totally that's a relevant that. kind of part of it. I think that's definitely true. Very And very well-paced. Very well-paced film. Never slows down. The pacing and the rhythm is really great. And it's not over long. You know, just a really concise. Everything's really, for such a silly movie, you know, outwardly silly movie, there's a lot to this movie. Very thoughtfully put together which is really interesting. And a lot of really fun stuff. There's so many, a great character study as well. I mean, the characters are very silly and over the top and exaggerated, but really a lot of fun. Very pronounced character types in the the film. But also, it bears repeat viewing also because there's so many characters in the shot oftentimes that it bears repeat viewing just to see what the characters that aren't the scenes not necessarily centering on are doing in the scene, which is a lot of fun. Guys like Wang and stuff like that. You know, it's a lot of fun. To watch that. Yeah, there are a lot of small Easter eggs and now I don't want to say Easter eggs, but yeah, small things to watch that bear repeating. And it's funny when you think about it coming out in 1980 and, and, you know, kind of the pre VHS environment, you know, Laserdisc was kind of bouncing around. People were starting to watch movies at home, but not really where it was kind of stranded for a while where you saw it probably in the theater and then you kind of had to wait until it came to VHS. And I think that that's when it lived again. And I really do think the DVD revolution of the late nineties and early two thousands was another major reason why Caddyshack lived again, because they just released kind of a no frills DVD version of the movie, which I owned. Yes. You know, at a time when, you know, and people might not remember, you know, too much anymore, but you know, those old cardboard cover DVDs that were like barely stitched together that were really cheap. Like that's kind of how a lot of people experienced some of these older movies that they didn't want to put, you know, commentary tracks over and didn't want to do special editions and deleted scenes where it was basically there was just nothing, you know, there's no features to really see on that particular version of it, which I think was, you know, which was fun. And and in that no frills delivery, it allowed you to focus only on the movie as it was, which I think was really cool. I'm going to pitch a few of these characters at you. I want you to tell me what you think of them. Okay. And then I'll go into them if I need to as well. We'll start with Rodney Dangerfield's character because you already brought it up. Al Zerbic, who's kind of like a, a real estate tycoon, millionaire, really ridiculous character kind of explain to me how you kind of take this because this is really one of Rodney Dangerfield's very first film you know yeah. roles and yeah. I really feel like he's playing himself which I also feel like he is in back to school and some of his other movies which is why it's so funny <laughs> and so I'm curious what you think about his kind of portrayal of this kind of real estate tycoon and yeah I really think without him the movie simply doesn't work at all I, I am so glad that Rodney Dangerfield's in this because it introduced me to Rodney Dangerfield as a comic but also because he is in my mind, the funniest part of the movie by a mile. He's so funny, dude. Now, Dagan, I think we would be doing the listeners a bit of a disservice if we didn't talk deeply about Rodney Dangerfield, because while Chevy Chase and I think Bill Murray deserve kind of their own exploration as comics, as actors, as kind of you know artistic beings, I think Rodney Dangerfield is kind of at the nexus of why this entire story works to begin with. 
And I think that that's worth exploring more. So I wanted to see kind of what you specifically had to say about Rodney Dangerfield as a comic and as an actor and as his role here in Caddyshack. I mean, talk to me a little bit about why he's so important. That's awesome, Kyle. That's perfect. I think, yeah, I think you have to say a little bit about Rodney. Now, as you pointed out to me, he was sort of the comedy darling and was sort of brought along by the Johnny, by Johnny Carson on the Johnny Carson show. Now, Kyle, was that in the 60s or 70s? He appeared on the show something like 35 times. So wow, I think that it probably spanned both decades. But I think it's predominantly 70s and maybe even into the 80s. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So he And, and by I, the way, he had an attachment to the Tonight Show specifically. He was on Leno in the 90s and 2000s. That's right. So he kind of stuck in the NBC ecosystem as opposed to going to CBS with the Letterman and whatnot. Which is really interesting, isn't it? It that's is. Always fa- that's always fascinating. Well, it's fascinating because Carson you know, famously wouldn't talk to, what's her name? Joan Rivers. Oh, that's right. Because Joan Rivers used to like fill in for him all the time, and Joan Rivers like would appear as a comic. <gasps> Joan Rivers is one of the f- funniest women that's ever been. Oh, she's one of the but best. But when she went to Fox, the nascent Fox network in the mid to late '80s, to do her own late night that would, you know, go up against Johnny Carson in terms of competition. Johnny Carson never ever spoke to her again ever. That's amazing. Ever. Can you imagine? Like totally cut her off. That was it. Yep. So a lot. Of, so I bring that up only because there's a lot of loyalty apparently in that late night sphere. We saw that with Conan and. How that kind of all played oh, out with Leno yeah. and stuff too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, there was a lot of animosity between Conan, Letterman, Camp, and then I guess later Jimmy Jimmy Kimmel yeah, was involved in that. It seems versus, like a lot of people have beef. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. But so yeah, so with Rodney, you know, Johnny Carson really brought him along and really liked him. And as Colin said, he spent a lot of time on the Tonight Show, and was really that's what get kind of really thrust him into prominence, and he was doing really well as a stand-up. Now. Two things about Rodney that I think were really fascinating in my research, and you knew more about him initially, I had to really look this up, was that was really interesting was that he was already kind of a professional comic and doing stand-up and actually left the life for a while, apparently, that he actually went and became an aluminum siding salesman for a while and for years before returning to comedy, before eventually sort of acquiescing and returning to comedy. And I think what had happened was he met his first wife and she was in show business as well. And I think they were both having a hard time with the business and just the ins and outs and, you know, not getting gigs and just all the hardships that come along with it. And I think they both agreed to sort of leave the life that it was sort of damaging. You know, he was drinking. She was having to put up with a lot of stuff and they sort of both decided in tandem to leave the life. And he actually went to be an aluminum siding salesman on Long Island, where he's from. He's from Babylon, Long Island, which is like the center of the island. And what was really fascinating was he left for a while and then came back. And then, of course, we all know what happened when he came back. He he was thrust into the limelight and never looked back. But what was really fascinating for me about Rodney Dangerfield, Kyle, was that his, not and not even put a damper on things or to put a melancholy tone on things, but he had a really rough childhood, this guy. And he was pretty vocal about it later on and talking about now apparently his dad was a really prolific vaudeville performer that was literally not around. I mean, 99% of the time he was gone. And his mom, Rodney's mom, was really apparently really neglectful and would and, and in fact actually, you know, was said like hated Rodney and really couldn't stand him. And basically just spent a lifetime ignoring him. And he was on his own as a kid. Like, he would leave the house. He had literally said in interviews that I listened to, like, he would leave the house in the morning on a weekend, say, right? He would go play. She would leave a half a sandwich out on the porch for him. She didn't want to see him. 
And then, you know, he would, you know, he would come back later on at night, never talk to him, never this and that. He relates a really crazy story about one time, I, I guess his mom and his aunt were going up to the movie theaters to see a movie. And, you know, Rodney's like, where are you going? You know, he was a little, little boy. And his mom was like, we're going to the movies. And he's like, well, can I come? And, you know, she was like, well, run in the house and go clean up real quick. And he did. And he came back out only to see them running away down the street. So he couldn't catch up. Like, that's how crazy his mom, like, cruel yeah, it's hor- his mom. It's horrible. Which is horrifying. And really does, I think, center his self-deprecating humor. Definitely. You can see where it comes from. Right. And he also copped to, you know, dealing with sexual abuse as a kid. You know, he tells a story that's I couldn't really get a lot from, but he tells a story about, you know, going in, you know, there would be a guy in a car and he would, like, give him a nickel to, like, you know, do whatever. And it was like, you know, he didn't even realize, you know, he was being sexually abused, that type of thing. So it was like really sad. It's amazing to track him back. You know, this you got this silly guy who's very self-deprecating and, you know, known for his, you know, brand of comedy and his very specific brand of comedy. And to date back and think about like the tragedy of his childhood, it actually really in a cool way to kind of overcome that and become you know, rich and famous and a movie star and sort of overcome all those obstacles to go on and be very successful. It means a lot. I thought that was a very fascinating part of his character. And I think that he was so vocal and honest about it was also said something because I think I could see, um, you know, you and I are not in that specific role, but as a famous comic or somebody who's famous for something and famous for being silly and light, you could see that sort of detracting from you or harming your image potentially. Or making people have a different, you know, making people visualize something different when they see you now. and So the fact that he was so honest was kind of cool. And hopefully that was therapeutic for him as well. You know, and, and I, I the other thing that I didn't know about him, Kyle, was how many comedians, how kind he was in the comedy world and how many comics he sort of helped bring along and give a start to. I, I had no idea about this, that he was so instrumental in a lot of people's careers, everyone from Jim Carrey and really a who's who's list and such a variety. Jim Carrey, Tim Allen, Andrew Dice Clay, Sam Kinison, and even to some degree guys like Jerry Seinfeld. He was really instrumental in helping give these guys their breaks. And I thought that was really neat. It's and a, that's a, an eclectic group of comedians too. Isn't that, yeah. isn't that crazy? And, a fa- and apparently he did it all through his life from early on when he started to be, have a modicum of power all the way to his old age, you know, and even on when he was on his deathbed, supposedly he had a lot of guys there, you know, with him every day that like they said, Louis Anderson came every day with him every single day. He was in the hospital for months, you know, because they loved him so much. And I, I love to, to read how beloved he was by the comedy community. I think that's really cool. Like that, that even for me, that goes, along you know even further than how talented somebody is how you know great of a human being they were as well that's just the perfect package for me so i was really uh delighted to find out all that because i like him a lot yeah i like him too and i think that it's interesting it i when i hear about stories of neglect and not only his neglect as growing up but he's also sexually abused and all these kinds of things as you said and he didn't really hit and become a star until he was older i know that he i think he presents older and uglier uh, as part of his (laughs) Shtick. Shtick, I think that's yeah. kind of his thing. 
but he was older when he hit, so his parents were unlikely to be alive. And it's one of those things where it's, I, I wish I would hear stories or hopefully maybe he was able to rub his success into his parents' face a little bit. Because as much as vindictive as that is, that's where my mind went to it is like, you know what, fuck, like, fuck you. You actually unintentionally informed my whole comedic career that made me a worldwide you know celebrity and a, and a multimillionaire living way better than you guys will ever live. And a little bit of a redemption arc for Rodney. And the other interesting thing in in terms of Rodney and Caddyshack is that I guess you have this dissonance between Rodney Dangerfield as a comic, a beloved comic, who to his deathbed was that people were there, like you were saying, and appreciating and kind of admiring him at, with Chevy Chase, who everyone hates, you know, mm. in the same movie. Wow, you know? that's a great point. Yeah, really great point. Uh, as I said already, when I listen about things about Chevy Chase, it's like, man, this people hate this motherfucker. They you really, know? He's really detested. And people don't feel that way about Rodney Dangerfield. And it's so funny because time heals all wounds. But with Chevy Chase, it's like a lot of the stuff comes from the 70s and 80s and people still hate him. Oh, I think there's a whole thing. If I'm not mistaken, I was thinking about this last night. I didn't bring it up because I, I wanted to research it a little better. But just briefly, I think there was a thing between Kevin Smith and Chevy Chase. Like that's how far, you know, the Re- hatred removed. Go- yeah, that's it's unbelievable. But Rodney, yeah, it's funny. I often forget, too. There's something about it's actually Aaron actually says this and it's easy for us to say because we're from there. But there is something about Long Island, dude. Like I agree. Jerry Seinfeld came from Long Island. Yep. You know, Howard Stern comes from Long Island. Not these comedians or these comedians, you know, but actually like iconic, you know, uh, landscape altering comic minds. We're not la- lacking those on the island. You know, no. so there's something interesting about it. Yeah. And you know what's funny too, Kyle? You could you could definitely speak to this. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. We know a lot of just funny people from Long Island. Like if you think of dad's friend, like his friend Bobby, mm-hmm. Uncle Mike, just guys that we grew up with being around that were just naturally funny. You know, I we know, I know we talk sometimes about Uncle Mike, but he's like to me, Uncle Mike is still like a comedy genius. He's that guy that like he has perfect timing, he knows what to say, he's very clever and quick, but he also just takes it to the point where it didn't go too far. Right. You know? Yeah, he knows the boundary. Which yeah. is a which is a talent. You know, and I think, yeah, it's there's something in the water because we just knew those you know, you could even talk about guys like Opie and Anthony, you know, and the guys that that they have on that show. I don't know if Jim Norton is from Long Island, but sort of that brand of comedy where it's like that wise guy, very quick witted, little bit mean spirited. Right. You know, a little sharp. Yeah, Jim Norton comes off as a tri stater. Yeah. And a shout out to Jim Norton. He doesn't know who I am. He probably doesn't remember, but he was one of the f- people that vocally and vociferously defended me when all that shit went That's down so with me. That's so cool. He was, he was one of the people that actually That's, was like, well, this is nonsense. He has no idea who I am. How awesome is that? So kind of a weird situation there as well. But yeah, to Uncle Mike, we, we got to do an episode with Uncle Mike one day or have him on something. He's he was hilarious. on Fireside Chats briefly and people yeah. did request it that we would get more Uncle Mike. Just from that little, just from that little bit of. <laughs> but one day we'll tell you the story. You know, you guys aren't ready to hear the Uncle Mike, Uncle John, who's oh, our other uncle, my God. and the what it, what would you do game that we play <laughs> oh with them, God. that we've been playing with them since I was probably, Dagan was probably 20 and I was probably like 10. Way too young. Yeah, way too young to play. And it's a really horrifying game. We'll, we'll save that for another time. Yes. Because it's just, just not right. Uncle John, too, another funny yeah, guy. Yeah, he's a it funny guy. just cat. has that, there's something about it. So I know exactly what you mean by that. Just naturally skilled at humor. And just maybe even being able to have that perspective on life where you could be able to laugh at things and not even a lightheartedness, but just being able to sort of have a natural ability to parody, you know, tease about things and make fun of things. I, I, I really love that. I think I always admired that. I don't know how good I am at that personally, but I, I know how much I respect it. 
you know, I, 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 you know, I'm just thrilled by it all the time. And dad has a lot of friends like that today too. It's so funny. You know what I love about it without getting into all the background of Rodney Dangerfield, just from what you know, in the movie, basically he comes into the film as this eccentric, you know, you obviously know from the visual cues, mostly that, you know, from what's going on on screen that he's this eccentric rich man, but you have no idea who he is for a little while. You just know he's coming. He's, you know, he's coming into this environment, you know, this sort of conservative country club environment. And he's this brash, you know, sort of ostentatious, colorful, loud guy. And, you know, he has money, but that's really it. And he's just coming in. He's just, you know, sort of, you know, kind of blowing the place up. You know, just by just by being there, and it's hilarious the f- effect he's having on the place, especially you know Judge Smales. He's just having this enormous. He's blowing the place up, you know, without even you know without explosive. He he's just so explosive of a character, and I love that he's just with this Japanese man named Wang. You have no idea who this guy is. <laughs> it's just like, and it the comedy is it's so a parking lot. <laughs> it's a parking lot. <laughs> you know. Don't tell him you're Jewish. You know? <laughs> but not tell him you're Don't Jew. tell him you're Jewish. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and you have no idea who he is for the first, I don't even know how many minutes. You know, and you're not even asking why because you're just so enamored by what's happening, this this visual devastation that's happening on the screen and what he's doing. It's just, it's so funny. It's so uncomfortable for the rest of the characters that it's just one of the most humorous things you could think of, you know. He's he's such a bull in a china shop. Oh, that's a great way of putting it, yeah. His introduction when he's rolling up in his car and just the funny horn that plays, like, it's just <laughs> totally ridiculous. He gets out of the car, he's always over-tipping everyone and, like, insulting them as he's tipping as them. As he's tipping them, giving them money. <laughs> And insulting. <laughs> he's like he's like looking at them like he's like keeps giving them more money. He's like get yourself a shirt, get yourself some shirt. <laughs> it's really like he really is a funny character. Like in terms of comedies, it's hard for me to think of an authentically funnier and more appealing character for me than so that. So appealing, so likable. And you know his introduction with Judge Smales in the pro shop when he's like. You know, give me six of these and give me one of these. And then he's making fun of the hat. He does the eye roll, which is one of he's the He's making fun of the hat. And look what he's dressed like. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what is happening look, this right hat. now? You get a free bowl of soup with this hat. He turns out, looks good on you, though. Then the eye roll. Yeah. And of course, like my favorite Rodney line from that particular scene, as I, I say it all the time, is, you know, this is my friend Wang. No offense. No offense. <laughs> So great. It's like brilliant writing and a lot of improv and a lot of the Rodney Dangerfield kind of isms in there. And I think they were really happy and pleased that they were able to get him in there because at this time he was already an established character and or established yeah. comic rather that was appearing on Carson regularly and was really making people laugh and was a known quantity <laughs> accompanied of course by Bill Murray and Chevy Chase were other known quantities from Saturday Night Live from the early kind of nascent mid to late 70s Saturday Night Live years where Saturday Night Live gets its origins it's funny man because it's easy to lose track of this you know or sight of the fact rather that Saturday Night Live began in the mid 70s and we're so far removed from that era. It's been over 40 years that that show has been on. And, you know, Chevy Chase and Bill Murray were, you know, well, Bill Murray was a little later. Chevy Chase was there at the very beginning. And, you know, looking at it through that lens, like when I know that, you know, dad loves those early comics and those early SNL years and stuff like that. And we're kind of removed from that again. But it's cool to look at it through that lens of why people appreciated this movie so much because of their appearance in it, you know, especially because Chevy Chase was a pretty big movie star at the time. Yeah, definitely. Doing other comedies as well. Yeah. What about Chevy Chase's character, Ty Webb, who I know, as you said, is your favorite character. He's and, my favorite. And is really, really funny and really dry and sardonic and, you know, passive. Yeah. He doesn't this... really give a shit. No. Yeah. He's got a, so he's sort of philosophical but silly. 
you know, and you know what's funny about it? Really, I'm not a huge Chevy Chase fan. I don't, I'm not like enamored with Chevy Chase. I don't, you know, when he's in, he's funny, you know, like the, you know, all the National Lampoon stuff that he does. I like those movies. I think they're silly, but I never, he was never a big deal to me, but he's definitely my favorite character in this movie because I think the character is so silly. He's like this pseudo philosophical guy. He doesn't keep, he's this professional golfer who's really talented, but he doesn't keep score. <laughs> you know, it's really silly. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but my my favorite scene in the whole movie is when he's sitting with the girl who he's trying to woo. You know, Judge it's Judge Smales' niece, yeah, right? Yeah. And he's at the piano and he and they're doing the shot and he puts the salt on his hand and he's setting up the it looks like he's doing a lemon drop with the shot of vodka or whatever and the lemon and the salt. And he puts the salt on his hand, he's setting it up, and he sniffs the salt, eats the lemon, and then throws the shot <laughs> over his shoulder. I just think that's the funniest that for some reason that just that whole bit. I just think it's hilarious. Yeah, he's a really, really funny character. I love it. And yeah, his dryness. Well, I mean, Rodney Dangerfield is technically very dry too, but his dry demeanor and his passive demeanor is what makes him so funny because he's just, he's kind of unshakable and doesn't really seem to be affected by anything that's going on around him at all. Like very, like I like that passivity a lot. So fun. And you know, in the beginning when our introduction to him, when he's with the caddy and he's calling him, he keeps calling him a different name. I never noticed. At one point he calls him Betty. <laughs> <laughs> It's just that little silly shit where you have to go back and see it again. Like, wait, did he just call him Betty? (laughs) (laughs) It's awesome. (laughs) And the other major character I would say before we get into some of the others is Bill Murray's Carl, the groundskeeper, who, you know, so it's important to realize that Bill Murray at this time was on Saturday Night Live actively and was kind of not really available for very long. And apparently was only filming this movie for like less than a week. And like they kept calling him to the set to to like fill in and do more and more scenes because as they were watching the dailies, I guess, and kind of getting the feel for the film as they were making it, they realized that he was a much more important comedic element to the movie than than they thought. And that pretty much everything he did was improvised in terms of his lines and, and his dialogue. You know, for instance, the Cinderella story scene, the famous Cinderella story scene when he's like destroying the flowers and golfing. Like that's all improvised. Like it's totally Is improvised. It really? Yeah. The whole idea of hitting the flowers, everything he's saying. I love that scene. Really, really funny Hilarious. stuff. And a lot of the scenes with him, when the, like as he's chasing the gopher, a lot of the lines are improvised or kind of worked off of a, a, a script that Ramis and his kind of team had made. But I think that they realized that they needed to integrate him more into the movie as they went on. And so, you know, talk to me a little bit about Bill Murray's character, Carl the Groundskeeper. It's so funny because all, almost all his scenes, there's one scene with him and Ty and stuff like that. But all, all his scenes are almost like these non sequitur cutaways where he's doing, it's like he's off, because he's off on his own mission to take care of the groundhogs. He's put up to his task in the beginning, of, so we know what he's up against. And every time he cuts away... Well, first of all, the whole bit where he's like dirty talking the old ladies on the golf course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that stuff is just like comedy gold. You know, he's like, oh, you little, you little tramp. You're all gonna get, you know, like that whole thing with the old, but it's like a bunch of old ladies. It's so sick. But I love all those things because he's so cartoony and it's such a cartoony take on, on the character. And I love that whole bit too, where he's talking to the head groundkeeper and he's being put in charge of this mission. And he's like, yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, forgive me if I'm. Forgive me if I'm mistaken, but if I kill all the golfers, won't they, you know, if I kill all the golfers, won't they just lock me up and throw away the cane? He's like, golfers! I said, golfers! <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that kind of stuff. It's just really, he's really funny. I love Bill Murray. I think he's wonderful. I, I really was turned on to Bill Murray by all the the stuff he does for Wes Anderson, the Wes Anderson films. I love him in those movies, you know, starting with Rushmore and into Tenenbaums and all that kind of stuff. But 
you know, going back and seeing his comedy, I love his specific, and you know, we love him in Lost in Translation and all the things he does, and going back and looking at SNL, of course, all the wonderful things he did. But I really like him. I like. I think he's really an eccentric dude in real life, and that comes across even in his earlier stuff. It really comes across in the characters he portrays, and I, I dig that. You know, he I, he's does the type of things that you know no one else could have done. You know, there's not a lot of comedians like that. All the comedians in this movie probably have that, which is kind of makes it special. Right. You know. Right. And it's funny. There was a story. I don't know if it's anecdotal or if it really happened where he was like late to the set. No one really knew where he was. And he like apparently I was reading that he basically stole Lauren Michaels like car and like drove it across the country and like <laughs> and then like showed up to the set late or something like that and asked like the people like, you know, where's the where's the local youth hostel? And shit. Like, he really did that. Yeah. Apparently that's like kind of how he showed up. And. You know, he had to be kind of dispatched back and forth to New York City for SNL because, again, they were trying to I think, integrate him more into the film. And, you know, famously, he had a feud with Chevy Chase, who's on this movie as well. And they yeah. realized, you know, the last scene that Bill Murray filmed for the entire movie was, you know, the scene, the only scene that he shares with Chevy Chase, which is when they're talking in, you know, Bill Murray's kind of like, you know, hovel, wherever he lives, like the, the shed. Yeah. And that's like a kind of an improvised scene between them that they realize that they don't share they don't any have screen any time with them. Yeah. And apparently the resentment might stem from Chevy Chase having left SNL very early for people that don't know. He was only on it for a year or two, I think. And then he left to do movies and thought he was going to be like hot shit and kind of left with a chip on his shoulder. And Bill Murray kind of came in at that point and kind of what was looked at as his replacement. So there was some sort of animosity from there. But if you read about Chevy Chase, it's sad. You know, my, my old roommate, Scott Bromley, introduced me to the fact that I didn't know this, and I'm sure a lot more people know it than I thought at the time, but that Chevy Chase is really pretty maligned. Like, he, a lot of people hate Chevy no, Chase. No, they don't like him. And, you know, like, if you watch, and, and this is what Scott Bromley did for me, my friend Scott, is that if you put on the Comedy Central roast of Chevy Chase, and you watch, I like the roast, the Comedy Central roast a lot. I think they're hysterical. I like them. And and the one of Chevy Chase is really mean. Like, if you watch it, like, these people, a lot of these people really hate him. It's, it's like, like not venomous. even funny. You really? Know, like you really watch it. I've never seen that. And apparently, because he's apparently just a huge douchebag. Yeah, people don't like him. And, you know, you read interviews with him. I just read an interview with him recently as I was researching this episode that was only published a couple months ago where, like, he still doesn't really find work very often. Like, he wants to work more than he's able to. He obviously had his stint on Community, which was a very famous, you know, NBC show and obviously did the National Lampoon's, you know, movies and recently, more recently, did another National Lampoon's movie, vacation movie, I guess. But, yeah, has kind of just kind of distanced himself and kind of made himself unwelcome amongst the kind of celebrity groups for his demeanor and his attitude about his own skills and his own comedic value and and the way he treated other people. And that kind of has stayed with him through the decades. And, yeah. And I don't want to say it started with Caddyshack because that's not true, but Caddyshack is just another entry point in that through line for his life post-SNL, which I always found really interesting. And I always found really interesting, too, that his name is Chevy Chase and that that's a town in Maryland. I always thought that, that was weird. So That is odd. Yeah, it is really weird. So there are other characters in this that I guess we could talk about. Danny Noonan is played by Michael O'Keefe, and Danny Noonan's kind of like the what's supposed to be the protagonist. He's like the caddy, the, the main caddy, the kid. And he's funny, but he's kind of the conduit by which the comedy happens. Like, it's really hard for me to imagine the movie being about him, which was really kind of the original intent. Yeah, the and the movie. movie kind of starts out centering around him. Right, and there's a really funny scene, actually, in the beginning with him when they're in that big house, he has like a lot of sisters and brothers and it's apparently based on some experiences that they had or whatever, you know, this kind of big Irish family. And, you know, he he makes some joke, some funny joke about a training bra or whatever, like for one of his sisters. It's a pretty funny intro, but from there kind of, he bikes to the golf course to, to Bushwood and it immediately really doesn't become about him. It actually almost feels like they're forcing an angle with him as you go through the movie. 
when you really want it to be more about the adults. I think they made a smart decision by making it about them. Changing it, yeah. yeah. about segueing. So do you have anything to say about that character, about Danny Noonan? No, I like, it's true that you could see that they shifted the interest and the focal point of the movie because it really starts out, like you're saying, in the, his in his house, he wakes up in the morning, they're eating breakfast. There's a kid at the table with his dad. The dad doesn't know who this one kid is. He's like, who is this kid? And the wife comes in, he's like, that's one of your nephews or whatever. You know, you could tell that it centers, it's starting to center around this guy. And he, you know, we follow him on his bike through the nice neighborhood to the country club in the beginning. That's our introduction to everything. And he's sort of the conduit by how the movie starts. And, he, you know, he has the conflict with the one caddy, the Denunzio, right? The Denunzio character. Yeah, Tony Denunzio. He's with another hilarious character that we'll get into, I'm sure. But, you know, you could see the movie shift focus. And it, he's not funny, but at least it, it's our introduction into the caddies and the caddy shack and what's going on with those characters and his boss and sort of the fiasco that, you know, that they're embroiled in, all those characters are embroiled in. So it's a cool, you know, it's a cool introduction to the movie. You know, I feel like this movie cuts away between the Caddyshack, you know, Ty, Rodney Dangerfield's character, the judge, you know, you sort of going in and out of the different characters, but it's, it still feels cohesive. You know, it's all set in one spot. You know, I guess the setting, you know, the country club setting is the the character which it's all set that draws everything together and keeps everything glued together right definitely and the culmination of the movie i mean it all leads into this kind of golf tournament between you know disparate sides and you know you find out that rodney dangerfield's character is really there to kind of buy and invest in real estate that's kind of going to affect the country club and ted knight's character judge smales is kind of there to kind of ward him off or try to ward him off and I think Ted Knight's character is really funny and really dry and really necessary to the comedy in the movie. It's disappointing to read about the making of that he was kind of like not into the zaniness behind yeah. the scenes that he was kind of like put off by it. And this is one of it's Ted Knight's shame. final film roles. And you often wonder if that had anything to do with it. But it is it is a shame to hear about like the zany shenanigans that were going on behind the scenes and the rampant drug use and alcohol use. Not that you have to do that, but that he was really put off by that. And it's kind of disappointing to hear that because it seemed like he really understood the comedy and the comedic value of the movie and the way he played his character. Yeah, he's good in the movie. He's great. You need him because he's the one that's actually getting frustrated at all this business, you know. And he's always, yeah, he's always the butt of jokes and always getting insulted. <laughs> and there's a really great scene with him in, at his yacht, the Flying Wasp. Oh, God which is an amazing name for it. <laughs> and how, you know, his wife is like, you know, christening the ship and she bra- and she hits the ship with a champagne bottle and breaks part Just of breaks it off. The- <laughs> I love that scene. Like there's really funny Always stuff makes like me that. laugh. It makes me laugh too because I'm like, you know, writing comedy is really hard. I know that. But like who comes up with some of these ideas? Like who is like, you know what? It's going to be really funny if she tries to smash the champagne <laughs> bottle and just breaks the ship instead. <laughs> and we just got a one shot of that and it works. And it's so strange to me that that really does that does work, you know, and I guess that's kind of one of the things that I really appreciate about Caddyshack too, Dig, is that in its writing, it has inherent comedic value because it's so well done. It's so subtle at times and so overt at other times, but I'm so enamored with it because I don't understand how someone writes something like this. I don't understand how you come up with an idea like this, and I especially don't understand how on the fly you basically rework it. It's difficult. And, and still stay within budget and within time and get the movie out on time. And still know? make it work. Right. And they were banking, you, you said it a little bit before earlier too, they were also banking on Rodney Dangerfield as a lead role in a movie, which he had never done before. He was very funny. He was known comedian, but he wasn't a movie star. So just the fact that they were banking on Rodney, too, and it worked, yeah, it means a lot. They really made it work. Everything worked. Indeed. And we, when we were talking about Rodney Dangerfield before, we kind of failed to mention that, you know, one of the famous stories about him on the set is that he was used to getting laughs. I mean, he's he's a, he's 
getting you know many laughs a minute because he his jokes and his comedy is so fast and moves so quickly. And he thought he was bombing and seemed really uptight and was not really doing well beginning because no one was laughing at his jokes, not really making the connection that you can't really laugh at your jokes on set because you're going to obviously pick that up in the boom mics and stuff like that. So it's kind of funny that it's it's cute. It's almost like naive in a way of this man to come to the set and not realize like, you know, no one's laughing at my routine. No, I'm, I'm not doing well here, but it's like, dude, we're actually just trying to get the shot. And I like, I liked that story. I like that anecdote about him. It shows an innocence in Rodney Dangerfield that you wouldn't really necessarily expect. You exactly. Know, that he, you know, understood that his comedy was essential to it, but thought that he was bombing or not delivering what he thought he was it's supposed so to deliver. And it's That's... like, man, how can you, how can you even think that <laughs> when you're like comic gold on every scene that you're in, you know? <laughs> Like him dancing at the club. Oh my God. Is like, and his eye, and he does the weird thing with his eyes and his face. He's just, he's not only gifted with his, you know, with words, he's gifted with his physical comedy too, which I think is an understated thing. Always shift, like I said, always shifting his tie, always shifting around and always making a weird face. And, you know, it's brilliant. It's It's brilliant stuff. That awkwardness and uncomfortableness. And not all, you know, you can't also overstate the fact that, you know, of just how odd an appearance Rodney Dangerfield has. He has a very, you know, he's very interesting man to look at. You know, he there's a lot of comedy just to his appearance and how he looks, you know, which is not a mean spirited thing. I'm saying that's adds to the comedy, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's it not only adds to the comedy, but what I love about it, because he's always been self-deprecating in his comedy, like we said. But what I like about it is, you know, the idea that you can't really write that stuff into the script that like him dancing is funny. And I'm sure that there was like, you know, in parentheses, you know, Rodney dances or whatever Al dances here. But like it's his interpretation of that comedy that I think is is so skillful, you know, and agreed. I mean, that whole scene in the club is amazing. You know, he has like this group of friends that love him. Like you don't really you're never really introduced to this group of people that no. just like are with him and they just like think he's they're hanging on his every word and There's they love no him. And they think he's so funny. It. it doesn't matter, no. <laughs> you know. And but you know, Judge Smales and his wife, and you know these other kind of more established, older types like hate him, and he's just insulting everyone, insulting the bartender, insulting the waiter, and so he insults the chef. Tell him this is a little great dog food, <laughs> and then they just cut like minutes later out of nowhere and like a non sequitur to the chef, who's like dog food, trying to go after. Yeah, him. really, really funny stuff. Now, I guess it's important and relevant to bring up, you know, before we get any further into it, that I think an important accompanying kind of feature of Caddyshack is the soundtrack and specifically Kenny Loggins is all over the soundtrack of Caddyshack which I think is awesome I love Kenny Loggins you, people out there might know Kenny Loggins best for like Footloose and for Danger Zone from Top Gun Top but Gun, sure. he did a lot of you know I'm All Right comes from Caddyshack which is another one of his famous songs it's a great he did, song he did about half of the soundtrack or more which he is did pretty, yeah which yeah. is pretty subtle and there's also Journey in the song with uh, Any Way You Want It when he's like, you know, let's dance. And he has the stereo in his golf bag and That's they just start cool. dancing and another oh dance, God. another Roddy Dangerfield dancing scene, <gasps> which is really, really funny stuff as well. So, Dig, where do we go from here? What do you want to talk about? I'm seeing a few things like from the background. You know, Mickey Rourke was supposed to play Danny Noonan, which I think is really interesting before Michael O'Keefe got the gig, which I think yeah. is interesting. Thank God that was ended up the way it, it did. And, you know, unlike other movies, because we've been researching some other films, we were, we did one on Willy Wonka. We're about to do one, I think, tomorrow or the next day on Back to the Future. It's interesting. It seemed like this was a much more set cast than other movies. I, that's the only kind of anecdote that I could really find easily about, like, any changing cast. It seems like they knew who they wanted. They identified their guys, and they made their movie. And it's r- remarkable to think about how it wouldn't work without any one of these elements, when any of these four or five elements. Like, even with Michael O'Keefe playing Danny Noonan, like, I wonder, like, would it even work without him, like, kind of being a more passive 
character because there is the, there are those weird scenes like his whole love affair with that Irish yes. you know waitress is kind of weird yeah. and kind of forced and kind of unnecessary. Yeah, but I guess gets moving. It does slow the movie down a little bit, but there is that. Her name, by the way, is Maggie O'Hooligan. Uh, <laughs> in the movie, her name in the real life is Sarah Holcomb. I got to give a, a shout out to Smoke Porterhouse, played by Jackie Davis, who's actually a musician who died in the late 90s. But Porterhouse is mm. this like kind of black. I don't know what you would call him. Kind of like the GM or something, maybe the general manager or something of the establishment. Yeah, and, it seems like that. Yeah. And there's a really right. classic scene that I absolutely adore that you and I were watching last night that I think is one of the more understated scenes in Caddyshack where they're making bets. He's making bets with like the head of the caddies and like some of the caddies behind the bushes as they're watching Judge Smale's uh, grandson <laughs> it, it, picking his nose and they're betting on if he's going to pick his nose or not and then if he's going to eat it. There's like really funny stuff in the movie that I think helps carry it because there's always humor around every corner and there's just little one-liners and really subtle things that I think, you know, help drive the movie apart from the mains and apart from kind of the main scenes. It's a very interstitial kind of spirit. Not at all unlike, in some ways, a movie we talked about a few episodes ago, which was Willy Wonka. Yeah. In that same spirit. Absolutely. Know? Yeah. And the other thing that I liked about the movie a lot was that they kind of made Lemonade out of Lemons because it didn't seem to really be going the way that they wanted it to go in any way. They obviously had two main actors in Chevy Chase and Bill Murray that didn't like each other. They originally wanted to get Pink Floyd to do the soundtrack, which I think is hilarious. And obviously that wouldn't have fit and it would have been weird. But obviously they were turned down from that. They had kind of an unhappy established actor in Ted Knight kind of trying to roll with it. Rampant drug use, especially cocaine use, which was very prevalent in the late 70s and especially Absolutely, prevalent yes. in Florida where they were filming because, you know, some of the cocaine was coming over from Florida. So that was kind of that kind of made sense as well. But it's one of those situations where I just feel like the chaos behind the scenes combined or multiplied by the actors up front is exactly what we got the movie that we got today and without any of those elements I feel like it wouldn't have worked out and I guess you can point to the sequel Caddyshack 2 which is awful it's I was going to ask movie. you about this have you seen it yeah and it's awful it's just a terrible movie and it makes you wonder like you couldn't recapture the magic you know they obviously had a bigger budget they had more preparation they didn't get most of the characters back except for Chevy Chase for Chevy the Chase was the only one right? yeah that reprised his role exactly and that that's the kind of what shows that I'm not even sure that he was a major driving force behind the movie but his inclusion along with other people yeah really made it work absolutely you know? yeah for sure so we got some comments and questions from the audience. Remember, if you support Collins Last Stand on Patreon, on patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand, you can submit questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas for all the topics that we do for Knockback, our nostalgia podcast. And, you know, as you know, we'll let you know the topics ahead of time so you can submit those with time to spare, and then we compile them into a list such as this. Dan OK, and it's I think it's Dan OK because it's spelled OK with capital letters, so it's not like Oak or Ock or anything like that. OK. Says, the first time I saw Caddyshack, I was 14. My brother, 25, brought home some VHS tapes, and we watched this, Animal House and Vegas Vacation. I laughed so hard, my asthma almost killed me. That's the way I felt, too, the first time I saw it. It really is an overwhelmingly funny movie. It's the first time you see it. It really is. Ryan Hurley says, this is such a quotable movie. Whenever I play golf, someone says a line from this film and at least at least once per round. Do either of you quote this film? And if so, which lines are your favorite? I'm oh. wondering if you have any favorite lines, Dave, that you I might do. want to regale. I so do, hit, hit, me with, hit me with some of those lines. Okay, let me... I don't want, I don't want to paraphrase. I want to get them right because I wrote these down. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, my two favorites are a flute without holes is not a flute <laughs> and a donut without holes is a Danish. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love that's Ty, those are Ty Webb's lines right 
right? Doesn't he? Say, yeah, yeah, Chevy yeah, Chase. That's, that's Chevy Chase's stuff. Oh, man. Those are two of my absolute fit. And and when Rodney Dangerfield asked the bartender, can you make a certain drink? And he's like, can you make a shoe stink? Yeah. <laughs> can you make a shoe smell? Yeah, can you make a shoe smell? <laughs> that's my favorite. Yeah, and I think that that's, what about you? I think that that's Tony Denuzio playing That's Denuzio the playing the bartender. Right? Yeah, exactly. But is it supposed to be him? Like, I think so. I think, like, they're all, you know, because they're, I think they're all kind of taking different gigs where they can. Yeah. And that actor, by the way, is Scott Columby, who I think, as far as I could tell, like, kind of fell into stage acting after that. But he's, he's awesome. really funny. He's so It's funny. very well done. Like, he's a very good foil. We all know that guy. Right. Especially growing up in the East Coast, New York, Jersey. He's that surrogate, right? He's like the, you know, Italian, you know, wisecracking Italian, you know, hilarious. Yeah. When they break the kind of gumball machine and you know, in the fight or whatever. And it's like, yo, clean this up, clean this up. You know, it's, it's just really funny and really relatable in that way. We didn't talk about Lacey Underall. We did talk about her a little bit, but kind of the attractive niece character of Judge Smales played by Cindy Morgan, who was actually in Tron a little after that and did some oh, TV and right. film as well. I forgot about that. Right. Very but, cute. She's very cute. Yeah, but she was kind of like the sexy kind of, you know, character that, you know, wanted to get with Ty and all of that kind of stuff. And I love the relationship that she like the passive kind of drug addled relationship that she just has with her grandfather and with, you know, everyone around her and kind of seems to be living in the moment, which I, I appreciate and respect. And especially the pool scene so funny when, you know, Danny and, you know, Denunzio are trying to flirt with her and then neither of them are, and both of them are kind of striking out just a lot of comedy surrounding her as well with her own passivity and her own, her own kind of, you know, lack of interest in anything that's going on around her. Like she yeah. doesn't want to be there at all. Not you know? at all. But they really do sex her up in the movie a lot. Like I was, you know, like she's wearing like polo shirts with no bra on and stuff like that. It's like really wild. I wonder if like people were really dressing like that. And they had to talk her into that nude, the whole nude bit in the movie. She didn't want to do it at first. Right, right. They kind of talked her into it. And supposedly she had a really big effect of everybody on the set too because everybody had a crush on her. You know, so that was another thing that she brought to the production of the movie. They thought she was quite cute in real life as well. Indeed. Indeed. Now... I wonder if I can ask you this question. I wrote this here in my notebook, and okay. I usually don't ask myself questions. Like I don't usually write things that I want to say. I usually write facts, and we kind of go off of them. Sure. But I wanted to ask you, why do sports movies in general work so well? And I don't think it has to be necessarily just comedy. It could be dramas, or it could be like, you know, Mighty Ducks is like kind of half comedy, half drama, or it could be like total drama, like Remember the Titans, or it can be totally comedic like this movie for instance or like Slapshot. yeah what is it about sport that makes the movie so appealing and why do we want to watch them so much that's really interesting well let me start with part a on this because i think why what makes this movie work partially so well is that it's not only making fun of the sport of golf it's making fun of the country the whole country club thing which is a notoriously you know non-inclusive snobby you know very it, they're an, it's an easy target you know, and it's making fun of the sport of golf, which is kind of associated, you know, especially in that era was very much associated with that whole country club sort of mentality and philosophy and mantra, you know, which is very easy to make fun of the snobbish, upper class, conservative, stick up the butt type of thing. But I think even further than that, sports comedies are making fun of sports is easy because I think what you know, I hope I'm not talking out of turn, but I think what happens in a sports comedy that makes us realize what's funny about it is how seriously we take it. How, you know, including myself, you know, how seriously we take our sports and our sports teams and how much we invest in it, you know, and how much blood, sweat, and tears we invest in being fans of sports teams and stuff like that. And that when you take a step back and look at it, 
it's actually something that is easy to laugh at and, you know, just tre- treating it lightly is refreshing. Taking a step back and seeing what's funny about it is kind of is kind of neat and it makes us kind of laugh at ourselves a little bit. I think you're right there. And I think, yeah, sports is such a part of the American fabric. And I think, you know, the Western fabric and around the world, whether it's with soccer, with baseball or with football or whatever the case might be, that since it's such an intrinsic part of our lives, we want to segue that into relatable fiction. And I think we find it that way. And I love that you put it in the terms of we take it so seriously that it makes a lot of sense to not take it seriously. Although I like the really serious sports movies as well that are really dire and, you know, like or like very touching, like Rudy or something like that, that are very, you know, uplifting or, you know, sad Me too. or tragic, whatever the case might be. Now, let's combine that with a different question that I think you can have some interesting insight into, which is. What about the movies of the late 70s and early 80s, that kind of era of movies? Like, how do we describe them and what makes them kind of so appealing? Because I think that there's an unusual amount of great movies from that era that we often look back to from like 77 or 78 through, you know, the early 80s, not only in sports or not only in comedy, but just generally, like, what is it about that time and the spirit and the feeling of that time? Because you lived during that time, which I didn't. So, yeah. What is it about the capturing of that time on film that makes it work so well? I think part of it, Kyle, is that it's so different today. I think that that's long enough ago that things were very different then and seemingly a lot more simple, you know, without technology and cell phones and all the, the stuff that goes along with being a, a human being now versus then. I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is that it's just pure nostalgia because a lot of this stuff came out when we were young, you know, when we were kids or not, or in some cases like yourself, not even born yet. And I think a part of it for me, especially someone of my generation, I'm 44 years old, that I think that the, when these movies came out, a lot of these movies, and I love that you talked about Aeroplane, especially because that's one of my favorite of that era. I mean, and one of the first ones that I saw. Yeah, oh, my God. So good. But these movies, when I was young, when this movie came out, I was, what, six, seven years old. It was Forbidden Fruit at that time. You know, we saw them on the wall. We knew it was rated R comedy or whatever it was. I'm not saying. Was Caddyshack rated R? There was no R rating at that time. Okay. So because the nudity would have made Oh, it no, rated. that's not true. There's no PG-13 rating at that time. That, right. Not I yet. I just totally made that up. So. Yeah, it must have been rated. It must have been rated. Because, maybe just because of the nudity. Right. It doesn't really There's have no much else. There's nudity, right? Though There's just, it's just her getting rubbed down by a tie. You see her boobs. Oh, do you? Yeah. yeah I guess you do. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, she's topless. You don't see anything else. But at that, from, I can speak for myself. Like seeing those movies as a kid on the VHS wall and we knew they were kind of naughty and they were forbidden fruit and we weren't allowed to see them yet. I think at a certain point that we were able to see them was also another thing that was sort of like, oh, I can finally get to see this now. Whether we snuck it with our friends in junior high school or we saw it when we were a little old, you know, like that type of thing. It's funny to go back and see what the adults were all laughing about and leering at and stuff like that. I love that sort of nostalgia factor that plays into it. What do you think about that? I love your take on that as well. I don't know. I think that there's something about the color aesthetic of that time, the yellows and the greens and these deep oranges that are really interesting to me. And I also think that there's something about the comedy where we were at an inflection point, I think, in in comedy in the 70s where things stopped being totally wholesome and stopped being totally innocent. I think a lot of that's driven by rock music and a lot of that's driven by the counterculture, obviously, and drug use and all those kinds of things, which is, it is what it is. But I think that like it by the late 70s, or early 80s, we kind of fell into a rhythm of that and you know it's interesting i was reading about disco recently and the reaction to disco in the late 70s and early 80s and how much people fucking hated it at the end and now that was kind of the buttoned up approach to this very bohemian and very hippie approach to life and music and work and money and whatever the case might be and that this was a more you know kind of straightforward 
you know, dancey, uh, eclectic kind of, you know, new way of thinking and new way forward. And I think it took itself very seriously. And I think that that was one of the reasons why people didn't like disco. Yes. And so I think that there's a reflection in comedy in the late 70s and early 80s of not taking things seriously. And it goes back to the point you were making about the country club at Bushwood, the fictional country club about it's an attack on the establishment, but from a different angle. It's not an attack on the establishment from the anti-war counterculture. It's an attack on the establishment from baby boomers, kids who you know, are caddies and deal with shitty old people and, you know, just want to get laid and want to do drugs yeah. and want to have fun. And it's an honest reflection of that. It's not, it's not trying to be pretentious. It's not trying to do anything. It's the exact opposite of the setting. You know? I think that's perfectly for somebody. That's very insightful for somebody as young as yourself, because that's very, very well said. Now you have to understand too, seventies, early seventies to mid seventies film. And not only the attitudes in general, but film was very serious. You have Let's look at the movies. French Connection, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, The Godfather. Kramer versus Kramer. Kramer, Kramer versus Kramer. I love that movie. Yeah, but that movie makes movie. me cry. Yeah, it's a great movie. You know, very serious films. And I think people were just ready to laugh. By the late 70s to early 80s, people were just ready, you know, Porky's and all that kind of stuff. And all Harold Ramis's stuff, Airplane. You just, people were ready to laugh, I think. You needed levity. And, mu- and even in music, like you said, with disco, everything was so serious. You know, Disney was dying, so there wasn't even like Kitty Fair, a lot of Kitty Fair. You know, Disney was all but dead. So it was people needed some levity, and I think that's very insightful for somebody as young as yourself to realize that. That's that Thanks. was a very good point. Yeah, I think that you just you find yourself after the mid to late, you know, the mid seventies. The Vietnam War is over. People are coming home. We're kind of getting over that. We're in this malaise politically with Nixon and Ford Carter comes in it's not going very well the oil embargo the Iranian you know hostage crisis the 70s the late 70s were not great in the United States at all and I know it's incredible to think about now but we we elected a Republican in Ronald Reagan to try to like turn that around he was massively popular in the 80s were a boom time not necessarily because of him but I think through him and through that conduit in you know what is it morning in America and all that kind of stuff well this was like kind of at the dawn of morning in America and so I think that because politics and because of the the kind of societal and civic feeling of the United States always bleeds into everything, whatever the case might be, whether it's music, whether it's music or movies or entertainment of any kind, as we see still today, kind of a the end result, I guess you should say, of, yeah, all of those feelings mixed together as one. And I think that's why we have such an unusual amount, in my mind, of great comedies from that era and really raunchy and unnecessarily inappropriate comedies from that era. <laughs> As well, because I think finally people were able to do that. I think finally people felt comfortable being that way. You can see that in the comedy of the time too, whether it's prior or others, where it was just, it wasn't family friendly. Great Not everything point. was for everyone anymore. Yeah. You could and it delineate. took time for that to happen. I'm not saying that that didn't happen. If you read about comedies in the post-war era when, when comedians were getting literally arrested at comic clubs and stuff like that for just cursing and shit yeah. like that. Yeah. That kind of stuff was happening in the 50s and 60s. Oh that was God, a real yeah. thing. But we were so long removed for, at that point that I think people were ready to flex their muscles and ready to be funny and realize that there's an incredible amount of humor in sex, in drugs, in womanizing, in all of those kinds of things. It's just It's just inherently funny. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. It was a return to Lenny Bruce. Exactly. After the fear of that subsided, and it's such a shame what happened to him. But exactly, I mean, Lenny Bruce is obviously the he major paved the target. way. Yeah, he and he paid the price, you know, for Definitely. other people's he did comedy, he which, I, did. which I think is why he's so revered in that regard because he really did pay the price, and he wasn't even doing anything inappropriate. I mean, can you imagine the people back then, the censors or the people, you know, the Christian conservatives or whoever was upset about it at the time, listening to Anthony yeah, Jeselnik or someone like that today? They'd fucking die. Oh my god, they would die. 
it would be over for them. Or listening, you know, tuning into Howard Stern one day or something like that. They would not even be prepared at all. You no, know? So no. it's interesting. And, you know, I think that Caddyshack is emblematic of that. And that's why I think it's just it represents that time. I love that it came out exactly in 1982 because I think it's it's not 79 or 81. It's just that turning point. Absolutely. That, that turning point that, you know, 1980 itself represented politically, represented economically. And all of those kinds of things. So really, really exciting stuff. And I, I love Caddyshack. I just I, I so highly recommend it to the audience. And, you know, I highly recommend you stay far away from its sequel, which, again, is really bad. But when did that come out? Part two. I'd say 88, maybe something like that. Oh, so a long time. Eight years after. Yeah. That's amazing. It's bad. I didn't see it for a while. And I finally just watched it to see what it was all about. And it really is bad. I mean, it's got no redeeming qualities to it at all. But that original movie about those caddies, about that golf course, about that conflict between the adults and kind of how things kind of shape-shifted in such a way behind the scenes to make this really comedic movie work, especially considering critically and commercially it just wasn't that appreciated. It is the exact epitome of cult classic where at the time no one gave a shit about it, no one went and saw it, and it was kind of left for dead. And you often wonder, or I often wonder anyway, if we didn't have this home video revolution which seemed inevitable because of technology, but let's assume that it just never happened, then how do any of these movies see the light of day again? Like, they're lost forever, and it makes you wonder if there are really gems out there from the 50s and 60s. And I'm not talking about the movies we know, but, like, really comedic gems specifically from these times that are just gone. Like, not that they're lost to history and there's no copy of them, but that people just don't know because they didn't have that second birth, that third birth, as people finally get them in the video stores and finally get them on Netflix or whatever the case might be. God, there must be so much lost. There us. probably is a lot. Yeah, did lack of distribution and so forth. Absolutely. And licensing sure. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, licensing is like, another one. It's very rare today to find something that no one knows about. You know, it's almost it impo- is. And it's almost impossible, really, to think about that. Yeah, because this, yeah, there's so many ways to find things now. You know what? Also, to play up this point, Kyle, I forgot to mention about Bill Murray's character. I don't know if he's ever spoken to this, Bill Murray, but speaking to our point, his character reminds me so much of Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver. And again, a, a, you know, a movie from that era, a very serious movie, Martin Scorsese film from that era, that again, this movie is the complete opposite of that serious sort of heaviness. This movie is such a light thing, but I feel like Murray was almost making fun of the Travis Bickle character in that. I see some similarities. It, it struck me that way the last time I watched it. And uh, again, it just speaks to our point of, you know, what this movie was coming out of, all that late 70s heaviness, the mid mid to late 70s heaviness, you know, that I think people were ready to just, uh, you know, laugh and smile and just have a good time. And, you know, it's so interesting to me that Harold Ramis has said that he can't even go back and watch the movie because he just sees all the concessions and compromises they make when he watches it. But I think part of the joy of it is sort of it's a low budget approach like there's a there's a very emblematic scene of, of what i'm talking about in the beginning of the film you remember when you first he fr- i think it's following danny into the country club and you see it's kind of segues off to the field and you see the gopher making his mound path along the grass and judge smale stops and notices it but at one point he's you know the gopher's going along and he's he runs into a flag and the flag just starts moving but it just shows the top of the flag moving in the frame like, they didn't make any effort to make it look like it's just somebody holding the flag and moving with it. Like, it's so low budget. But I think that's what kind of makes it fun, that whole approach to it. You know, that's sort of like low budge, you know, just funny approach to it. 
you know, and, and the, the whole thing with the no, 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 with Ty Webb shooting and he's doing the crazy trick shots. It's just cutting. He hits it and it cuts away to the close up of the ball going in the hole. By no means did they try to make him look like he made any of those shots. Right, right. But that adds to the cartooniness of it. Yeah, it adds to the ridiculousness of it. It goes without saying, but movies with high budgets, you know, not often, but, you know, well, I guess often end up being great and end up being funny and worthwhile. But it's always more impressive, like with Star Wars, for instance, being made on what, $10 million budget or something right. like that. It's way more impressive than making Star Wars for $100 million. Of course, you can make that for $100 million. And of course, with Caddyshack, with more time and more money and more skill and more whatever. Because I think Harold Ramis, you know, if you read about him in this movie, I think he felt a little bit out of his depth with this movie. I think that he is was used to writing things and kind of relinquishing them to people that understood more. And I think that him being in the director's chair gave him a sense of agency over the movie and a sense of control over it that he was not prepared for and did the best he could with. And it's interesting reading about him and Bill Murray and how their relationship kind of extends to Groundhog's Day, the movie, which come out, comes out in 1993, and how they had a major falling out after that movie came out and didn't talk for a long time. And obviously, Harold Ramis died in 2014. And if yeah. you read about Bill Murray, who's obviously still very much alive and well and with us, that, you know, they they did remedy their relationship with each other, you know, before he died, which is nice to hear. And, that and is. I didn't know they had a falling out. Yeah, I don't know if people really understand or know what it was over. But, yeah, there was a falling out after that movie, you know, occurred. And wow. It speaks to Harold Ramis's skill as a writer and a director and kind of someone who can attract talent by getting, you know, someone like Robert De Niro in Analyze This because... People have to remember that, and we can do, you know, maybe down the line, analyze this and analyze that are really funny movies, especially analyze this. And it's so funny because I think about Robert De Niro, and this is like insane. I think this is still insane for a lot of people. Like, I love Robert De Niro as a comedy actor. And, you know, He's with, good. And with Meet the Parents and, you know, all, all those movies, like, it was really Harold Ramis that was one of the first people that identified that he could do it. If 20 years ago you were like, yeah, Robert De Niro is going to be better known in the 21st century for his comedies than he's going to be known for his serious roles, people would be like, you're out of your mind. It's impossible. Yeah, how can that be a thing? And so there's a vision in that. And there's a vision in him that identified. It's, of course, you can see Chevy Chase and Bill Murray being funny and Rodney Dangerfield doesn't really take a lot of skill to figure that out. And by the way, you know, it took a lot of skill. You know, Don Rickles was one of the people that was considered for that Al Cervic role that ended up being Rodney Dangerfield. And that wouldn't have worked. I don't really find him as funny as Rodney Dangerfield at all. So I'm glad that they stuck with that. Don as well. Rickles is more cutting. It, right. It's a less likable. There's a cleverness, but there's also sort of an intimidation factor with him. You think he there's a warmth and an innocence to Rodney Dangerfield. It's his his comedy is self-effacing. Don Rickles is a comedy is attack. It's a different thing. I love Don Rickles. I think he's very funny. I think he's very clever, but he's off putting because you think he's gonna get you. You know, and he is gonna get you. Right. Yeah, no, he's you gonna know? get you. Oh yeah. Definitely. So that's a whole different brand of comedy. So, Dave, I forgot at the top that we didn't do our dad jokes. Oh, yes. So I guess we'll end this episode of Caddyshack, which will be a shorter episode, but that's okay. We go long, we go short sometimes. I think we have to go the appropriate length for yeah. whatever we're talking we about. We can't force it, my friend. But we'll end this episode with the dad jokes, and then we'll end with You're the Worst as well, which okay. is our new segment. So hit me with a few dad jokes that okay. are relevant to Caddyshack. <laughs> this made me think of another joke, too. Okay, so why... Don't grasshoppers play golf? I don't know. They prefer cricket. Oh, I should have probably known that better. You should have known. You could have got that one. I could have thought more I like this one. That. I like this one. Okay. How many golfers does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know. Four. Oh, I should have. <laughs> if I just thought a little deeper. You know what it made me think of? You'll remember this joke. Just set me up. You ready? It has nothing to do with this I should have said two. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> why is that still funny somebody getting hit in the hit in the nuts is still funny to me i'm 44 years old it is funny it's, totally it's hilarious funny. it's a great oh it's so good 
I should have yelled too. <laughs> so, all right, you ready for this joke? Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting Move. cow. <laughs> I knew that one. I know that one. I love that you pulled joke. that one out before I in the years that past. Joke. <laughs> That's the best joke ever. You do love it. <laughs> I really do. All right, so let's play before we wrap things up permanently. We'll okay. play You're the Worst, which is our new segment where we identify the worst of something. The worst of something. So do you want to lead or do you want me to lead? How do you you lead this? this one if you don't mind. Well, you're wearing Zelda socks. I am. And from the Legend of Zelda, the original NES version of the game. And it's funny because on my list, I have you know a few things written down about You're the Worst. And one of the ones I wanted to know about, what the worst, what's the worst Zelda game? Oh. Ooh, the worst one. And there's a couple that I haven't played. I never, I'm going to cop to something right now. I've never played Twilight Princess. Never played it. Well, you're not missing anything. I never beat it. Never beat it? No. But you've played it. Yeah. So the worst, but I have played most of them. Worst Zelda game. Big fan of the first two. Big fan of Link uh, to the Past. Big fan of Minish Cap. Big fan of Four Swords. I would say the worst one for me is probably... Man, this is a tough one, Kyle, because there's a couple that I don't like very much. I would say Skyward Sword is probably the worst mm. one that I've played. Yeah. It didn't really resonate. There was nothing special about it to me. I was really excited when it came out. I think Helene and Lilia got me like the, like the special edition for my, my birthday. I was really excited about it. But I didn't like it. I didn't care for it. What about you? What's your least yeah, favorite? Yeah, I don't think I even really ever messed with that one. I think out of the ones that I played, my least favorite, Twilight Princess is definitely up there. But I also have to give a honorable mention of Minish Cap, which I, I didn't really care very oh, much Oh, you didn't for. like Game that Boy game. Advance. Ah, I didn't like the gimmick of being small and being big or whatever. I didn't really care oh, for it. You, you lent like me that, that game, actually. Okay. I, I, played it I remember you, that. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. lent it to me in, when I was in college. So it was a long time ago now. And, you know, I probably would put on this list like Phantom Tracks and whatever that other one was, but I could barely play them because you had to use the stylus on, on DS to play those other oh, games, okay. which was totally ridiculous to me. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I would go with those games. Okay. You know? All right. All so, right. Are you ready for your worst? Yeah, let's go with that. Okay. Your, what is your worst, your least favorite song, a song that bothers you most or that you hate the most of the 80s? Of the 80s. One that just doesn't register with you, or that you just you turn on the radio comes on. I can't listen to this. God, that's a great question. Of the eighties, of the, all the eighties, the whole the whole decade. God, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. I'm trying to think of what mine would be, but I don't really have an answer for it. Of the eighties, of the eighties. Oh, you know, Rick Astley. Never gonna give you up is probably completely ruined. That's now because a great. Of the Rick Roll that's thing. a great. So I would never. I never like. It's ironic because he kind of ruined. Like he played into that a lot and like plays it up and and kind of embraces that. Does that he Rick really Roll do, kind of thing? He you does. Know? Yeah, like he's done like comedy bits and stuff about it. And I think he kind of led to the demise of that song being listenable. I can't listen to that song. I can't stand it. It's terrible. It's terrible. His dumb red hair. No, <laughs> it's the dance. That yeah. dance. I yeah. can't stand that dance. It's the worst. So I think I'm going to go with Rick Astley's Never Going to Give You Up. Very That's what comes to mind for me. It's a hard one because there's so much good stuff in the 80s that it's, you know, I don't want to, I, I would never want to speak ill of anything that needn't speak, be spoken no, ill of. No, this is just for fun. Of course. No of offense course, to Rick. Who invented the Rick Roll? I don't know. Some, you know, brilliant. I get, I get pretty mad when I get Rick Rolled still to this day every once in a while, you know? Does it still happen? No, I think it happens every once in a while, yeah. <laughs> and I remember when it happened, like, 
I remember when it would happen, you know, 10 years ago, whenever it started, that people would, you know, deny that they got Rickrolled or pretend that they knew or whatever. Or like, oh, I didn't get Rickrolled. I knew. I knew, you know. Or you shut it off really quickly, but you still got Rickrolled, you know. It, <laughs> Shutting off quickly doesn't it doesn't stop you from getting Rickrolled. You still it's so it. weird. It is like someone made that up. <laughs> I know. It's so crazy. It became a thing. It became a national, international thing. I mean, imagine all the memes and all the things we've attempted to make up. Just us and other many millions and billions of people over time have tried to make up that just never went anywhere. And then no. someone was like, I'm going to make this thing called the Rick Roll, where you think you're getting something else, but then Rick Astley pops up and starts singing you know, his, his, his hit single. I love it. Very weird, but very cool. When was that? When did that start? I was out of college. I want to say 2008, 2009, something like that. Yeah, that's probably about right. Where it would be like embedded links, like where you know you could edit the link, so it would be like a hyperlink. It would say something, but you would click it, and it would just be the YouTube video for that instead. And then you'd try to click out when you'd see it load before it started, or but you still got rickrolled. <laughs> you still got rickrolled. And I just remember that because my friend Mark Ryan that I worked with at IGN used to say that, like where I I, I tried to get out of it once or whatever in that similar way, and he's like, you still got rickrolled. <laughs> yeah, regardless, it gets old. Yeah, so. Anyway, that's our episode about Caddyshack. We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you think about the shorter format. We're not going to go over the shorter format all the time, obviously. But, you know, when it makes sense. I think this will probably be the shortest episode we've done. Which makes sense because the last episode you listened to is by far the longest episode we've done. Definitely. So you have contrasts. Black and white. I like it. As it were. I like the contrast. You know? Peanut butter and jelly. Those contrasts? Those aren't really contrasts. Those are the things that go together. <laughs> Come to think of it. Dagan, appreciate your time. I was born to rub you. But you were born to rub me first. <laughs> that was apparently all. A lot of that was all improv too. Apparently, and apparently it that, looks like it. And apparently, that actress's reactions, like when he dumps the whole oil bottle on her, is like a totally authentic reactions. Like, what are you doing? You know, very funny. You could see because she's not really like reacting. She's just like very serious about the whole thing. You know, I lo- I love that whole. It's very thing. good. Very good stuff. Well, Dig, I appreciate your time. Thank you, my Appreciate friend. all of you guys of out there for your love and support of Knockback and all of things Collins Last Stand. Remember, you can support the show on Patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand if you so desire. You get special perks if you do. If you listen on free feeds, please consider giving us nicer views. You can always find us on Twitter and Instagram as well if you want to say hello. We'll see you next time. Take care. Bye. Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan-supported over at Patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon. And I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Sean Battershall, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Will Caldwell, Luis Cancato, William O'Carroll, Matthew Carter, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Cutter Crow, Nick Cummings, Daniel D'Amour, Daniel Delanikos, Travis DePew, Mitchell Durkash, David Ellis, Albert Escobar, Brian Fink, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Stefano Fantano, Photos Frangos, Connor Gagian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Nathan J. Henry, Wyatt Henry, Asa Haas, Zan Isa El Ricey, Josh Yeager, Paul Joyce, Greg Julifs, Jeremy Key, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kitredge, Taylor Christian Laudrin, Christian Larson, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Ashlyn Lee, Anthony Lencioni, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Aaron Litwiller, Lou and Ray Loper, 
Colin Love, Josh M, Kiet Mai, Ryan T. Mandel, Peter Mark, Joe McPartland, Wyatt McVeigh, Dennis Meinchin, Andrew Mendoza, Albert Miranda, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Josh Netzel, Jonah Newman, Adam Nix, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Todd Paxton, Marius S. Peterson, Enrique Perez, James Perone, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Matthew Plaster, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Jonathan Rice, Toby D. Riemenschneider, Austin Riley, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Matthew Savoy, Hans Schierenberger, John Schultz, Chris Schaefer, Michael Shanholtz, Toby Schutman, Joshua Smallwood, John Tabanillo, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tallman, Gabble Toombs, Tam Tran, Dan Vale, Adam Van Curen, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Dade Michael Edward Went, Mike Wayne, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Random Guy Radio, Mad Mock Media, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Throw7, Infinite, Barrick, Mubarak, Richter86, Dav9834, Donk2015, and Gavin.